It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. We've got huge breaking news here today. It's massive. It's transcendent. It's existential. Uh, the fate of Western civilization may depend on it. It has to do with Donald Trump and Facebook. I'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to talk just a little more about the Bill and Melinda Gates divorce. And I, we went into this yesterday. Yes, of course, it's a huge global story because of the tremendous work, uh, the $50 billion endowment of the Gates Foundation and everything else. But on a sociological level, I meant to get into more of this yesterday. A lot of people were just scratching their heads. There's actually a headline in the Washington Post today. If Bill and Melinda Gates can't make it, what hope is there for the rest of us? In other words, here's a couple who, you know, worked well, uh, built this global empire, this, this international brand. They seem like nice people. There hasn't been a hint of a scandal or turmoil. And they say in their statement, you know, they tried to repair the relationship. They couldn't do it. And they are going their separate ways. I mean, they're handling it in a classy way. And there was a lot of snark online about this that I thought was completely and totally off the wall. Like, what do you got to beat up on them for in this kind of circumstance? But there is something like they have so much money. They can do whatever they want. You know, they could have 10 homes around the world, all of that. And yet, you know, their marriage ultimately didn't succeed. Um, and it's just fascinating to me, I guess because... Bill Gates, you know, the nerd who has essentially invented Microsoft in his garage is so well known. Um, but he's not a, you know, he's not a, uh, I, I know some people think like he's secretly behind uh, the vaccines and he wants to kill people. But leaving that aside, you know, he really hasn't been a, an inflammatory figure. I mean, certainly Microsoft went through the antitrust trials uh, of a couple of decades ago. I'm not saying, you know, he hasn't taken stances that some people may not like, but he is not a polarizing figure in my view. And, and whatever uh, mistakes he may have made with Microsoft, even with the foundation, I mean, this foundation does so much good in battling AIDS and malaria and edu doing education efforts around the world that, you know, he really is kind of an upstanding global citizen. And so I think there is... Uh, you know, some people are shocked. Some people, as I said, are are being nasty about it. And others are just like, well, marriage must be impossible. I, I don't know. I just wanted to uh, digress on that for a moment. So let's get to number one. Uh, the buildup for this thing was just incredible. You know, who even knew until uh, a couple months ago that Facebook had an oversight board? And this board, it's like the UN. It's like all of these, uh, you know, uh, human rights activists and journalists and professors and esteemed uh, brilliant thinkers from around the world uh, that certain Facebook decisions can be appealed to. And that's what happened with Facebook's permanent ban of Donald Trump. And by the way, Twitter said, no matter how this thing came out, we're not reviewing it. He's banned for life. Now, I've said a number of times that while I, at least you could make an argument that in the wake of the January 6th riot at the Capitol, that a social media giant, which obviously leans left and Mark Zuckerberg leans left and they never liked Donald Trump anyway. I'm not sugarcoating any of that, but you could have made an argument, a coherent argument, intellectually consistent argument that that, that that was a time when Donald Trump's voice needed to be off social media because, remember, there was still fear there would be another attack. National Guard were still, thousands of National Guardsmen uh, still camped out in front of the Capitol. Uh, there was, of course, the guy who, who uh, killed another Capitol police officer many weeks later with his car. Uh, and so it was just a fraught time in, in America. 
But once he was out of office, I couldn't understand the justification for saying he can never be on Facebook again. Uh, you know, he just didn't, doesn't have the power to mobilize people the way he did when he was the 45th president of the United States. Anyway, you may have heard by now that Facebook's oversight board upheld Facebook's decision to kick Trump off, but with a, a very large caveat. So I'm looking here at a couple of different news stories about it. So Trump will remain suspended from Facebook, according to this oversight board. Um, but there's kind of like leaving the door ajar that he could come back. So it's been four months now since the suspension uh, about fears that he might incite additional violence if you take the view, as Facebook did, as many journalists do, and, and many other people disagree, Trump supporters, that he was responsible, at least partially responsible, um, certainly he was responsible for all of these uh, pro-Trump supporters coming to D.C. on January 6th, marching to the Capitol, and protesting um, the certification of the Electoral College results, which showed that Joe Biden had won the election. He won more states in the Electoral College, and he won the popular vote by, you know, 7 million votes. Um, now, they have a right to go protest, demonstrations, that's all fine. Obviously, when they broke the law, when they uh, trampled the barricades, when they went in, when they committed vandalism, when they committed violence, when they uh, attacked police officers, when there were deaths involved, that was a horrible and tragic day for our country. Uh, here's Politico. The decision has potentially huge, I've already used that word, implications for American politics, Trump's future in the 2024 elections, and the balance of power between world leaders and the U.S.-based social media giant. Okay. But here's the thing. Here's the nuance. Um, the oversight board said that Facebook violated its own rules by making the suspension indefinite. That there's nothing in the Facebook you know, rules about who can be kicked off and who can be suspended and who can be banned that says you can impose a lifetime ban. And so uh, let me read to you a little bit from uh, this uh, carefully uh, lawyered decision. Uh, they kind of kicked it back to Facebook said Facebook needs to finish a review in six months. We will now consider the board's decision and determine an action that is clear and appropriate, Facebook said in a blog post response. In the meantime, Mr. Trump's accounts remain suspended. Uh, so here it is, civic, technological, free speech, journalism, human rights experts from around the world. The board found that in maintaining an unfounded narrative of electoral fraud and persistent calls to action, Mr. Trump created an environment where a serious risk of violence was possible. There was a clear, immediate risk of harm, and his words of support for those involved in the riots legitimized their violent actions. So they're saying, fine, kick them off. But Facebook did not follow a clear published procedure in the way it did it. Quote, in applying a vague, standardless penalty, standardless, that's really frowned upon, and then referring this case to the board to resolve, Facebook seeks to avoid its responsibilities. The board declines Facebook's request and insists that Facebook apply and justify a defined penalty. So basically said, there's nothing in the Facebook oeuvre that says you can ban somebody for life. Uh, and if Facebook wants to change its rules and say you can ban somebody for life and then ban Donald Trump, that's fine. But in other words, the Facebook violated its own rules. It, it, the board backed up. Uh, the Zuckerberg company's decision to do this in the wake of January 6th, but then say, you know, by just saying he can never come back, and, you know, I don't have to underscore the fact that he's now a former 
president of the United States. The board kind of wrapped the knuckles lightly of uh, Zuckerberg and company. Yeah, so what happens now is six more months, everything quiets down. Undoubtedly, Facebook comes back and says, you know what, we've changed our rules. Some people are so bad, they got to be kicked off. I'm sure lots and lots of pundits are going to uh, weigh in on this today. It's just happened as I sit down at the buzz meter microphone. You know, that leads me to this. I, I went to Politico this morning. Went to you know I go to a lot of sites. A lot of uh, I go on Twitter. I, I try to find. I try to cast a wide net and find a lot of things to talk about. For you know, not just politics. Um, the top of Politico, the homepage, there were four stories. I'm not making this up. Four stories related to Donald Trump. The first headline. This is before the decision, obviously. The Facebook ban hurt Trump in surprising ways. Story number two. If Facebook takes Trump back today, will Twitter? Actually, we do the answer to that, but question mark headlines are always enticing. Number three, why Trump's new blog could lead to more social media takedowns. Number four, quote, it really Fs the other 24 wannabes how Facebook could give Trump a huge boost. Four different stories. So when people say, you know, Donald Trump, he's not as influential as he used to be, and, you know, he doesn't have the same following, he doesn't get the same interactions, he's off social media, and he's just sending out uh, press releases, that's the perfect microcosm of how, you know, the media are still agog, obsessed, fixated on all things Trump. And when you combine it with big tech, it's kind of irresistible. The Liz Cheney story, which I'm going to talk more about in a moment, is, is really a Trump story. At its base. So that's why I kind of poo-poo it when people say, oh, you know, Trump's not really, he's really kind of faded. He just, he just hangs out uh, at Mar-a-Lago and nobody's really paying attention to him. The media paying huge attention to him in no small measure because any Trump story gets clicks and ratings. It's just a fact. You know, Joe Biden, um, whatever you think of his presidency, you know, he's a very sort of plotting and somewhat predictable politician. He gives his speeches, folks, we need to get vaccinated. Do it for yourself. Do it for your country. I'm not denigrating that in any way, shape, or form. He, he is, by design, a lower-key politician. He doesn't want to be creating controversy on Facebook or Twitter. He doesn't want to be uh, attacking his enemies. Now, is he also, as we've talked many times, you know, uh, running uh, or trying to execute a far more liberal agenda than he talked about in the campaign? Yes, yes, and yes. But he just, you know, he just doesn't excite people. I mean, even the people who don't like Joe Biden, they're trying to either they say, yeah, you know, he's kind of out of it. He's not really running things. He's kind of addled. Um, he's he's a radical socialist. OK, but it doesn't it's not getting much traction, at least for now. And by the way, uh, I went on this site that Trump created and it's just like a blog. And, 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 and everyone wrote up, well, here's his social media. And it's just a bunch of, you know, Here's what I think, and here's, you know, if you want, and then you sign up for things, or you can get it directly in your inbox, I guess, whatever. But then uh, Jason Miller, uh, his spokesman account, said, this isn't the social media site. That's still coming. This is just, you know, a Trump blog. Uh, but until that was clarified, it did seem like a bit of a letdown. All right, number two. I want to talk about Liz Cheney now. Spent a lot of time on it yesterday, you know, who is increasingly likely to lose her post as the number three House Republican because of Donald Trump through the through the lens of conservative media. So let me start out with the Wall Street Journal editorial page. One of the intellectual leaders of the conservative movement has had a lot of differences with Donald Trump, and that's particularly true after January 6th. So uh, journal editorial today, uh, talking about Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy knows Cheney is right. 
The election wasn't stolen, yet Mr. Trump wants an endorsement of his stolen claim to be a litmus test for every Republican candidate. She may be ousted because she is daring to tell the truth to GOP voters and at personal political risk, says the journal. Uh, the editorial board said that purging Cheney for her honesty would diminish the party and called on Republicans to find ways to speak truth to voters in 2022. Republicans will look foolish or worse to swing voters if they refight 2020 in 2022. Let's move on to National Review. Two different pieces about this. Uh, the first one says, you know, you're either pro-Cheney, you're anti-Cheney, or there's a third position, which is that she's right, but is now too unrepresentative of her party to help lead it. That in itself is a sad reflection on the state of the Republican Party. I said yesterday, look, if she's out of step with, with the rank and file or the caucus on the Hill, you know, you have they have the right to say we want somebody else to be in the leadership. But sad reflection, says this first National Review piece. It's increasingly uh, looking as though having survived one attempt to oust her as conference chair, says NR. Cheney will have a difficult time remaining in its leadership. Um, McCarthy went on Fox yesterday, as I mentioned, said, I've heard from members concerned about her ability to carry out the job as conference chair to carry out the message. Um, he also was caught on a hot mic saying, I've had it with her and I've lost confidence in her. Uh, so tell us how you really feel. Uh, Cheney's office came back. This is about whether the Republican Party is going to perpetuate lies about 2020 election and attempt to whitewash what happened on January 6th. I have a whole column about this today uh, that really gets into the nuances and also just the sheer irony of the media now backing a Cheney, given the way Dick Cheney was treated during the Bush administration. Um, uh, so this National Review piece goes on to say, it makes sense to say Cheney can no longer serve in leadership, but what that means in practice is that the Republican Party is still so under the thumb of Trump that consistently acknowledging reality about the election disqualifies somebody from leadership. Now, so here's the second National Review piece. People who dislike Cheney's particular foreign policy or want to see the Trumpian revision of the Republican Party continue are loudly assisting Cheney's views have no constituency beyond a few never-Trump pundits. That is not true. Look no further than the results in Georgia, where the Georgia Republicans lost those final two seats that gave the Dems effective control of the Senate. Right now, Donald Trump's political power makes for an unstable GOP, even in defeat, he still has the unstinting loyalty of a large share of the Republican electorate. Absolutely true. But his promotion of election conspiracy theories divides Republicans. For now, the only thing that can unite the Republican conference is to stop litigating Trump and square up against the Biden White House and the Democratic Congress that empowers him. So National Review looking for a different way. Um, here's New York Times news story, again saying, I mean, not only when, when there are stories saying, here's who's in line to succeed you, you're probably toast. So uh, Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik uh, is now being touted as, of course, of course, she's the only woman in the House GOP leadership. But of course, she's going to be replaced by a woman. So there are a lot of people talking her up. I saw an uh, item, Punchball News, saying Trump's going to endorse Stefanik. That's fine. But what's fascinating to me about this uh, New York Times story is some of the background stuff. Uh, many House Republicans insist they have no problem with Cheney's vote to impeach Trump. Nor are they bothered by her neoconservative policy positions, hawkishness at odds with the America first approach of Donald Trump, but they fear Ms. Cheney's refusal to stop criticizing Trump or condemning the events of January 6th could weaken the party's message going into the midterm elections. Um, 
So this goes on to say that many had hoped that Liz Cheney would just sort of move on. But instead, she's doubled down, at times turned her fire on colleagues. Um, she drew attacks from the right. Remember in the Biden speech to Congress, he's walking down the aisle. Liz was on the aisle and they did a fist bump. And she later tweeted, we're not sworn enemies, we're Americans. Well, she got a lot of heat from the right on that. Um, those who know her best say privately, this is where you get uh, her supposed allies kind of twisting the knife. That Ms. Cheney's predicament reflects both her principles and her personality, including a stubborn streak that sometimes prompts her to act against her self-interest. One ally who's been exasperated by her recent months described her actions as classic Liz Cheney. She will always do what she thinks is right, but she will just never stop to think she's wrong. And then Dan Balls, Washington Post columnist, you know, always impeccably even-handed, really comes down on the GOP here. This saying that trying to purge Liz Cheney further accelerates her party's full capitulation to Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. Moving as Cheney is a sign of political cowardice. While shocking, it is not surprising for a party that has lost its way. The majority of Republican lawmakers says Balls appears to have stopped believing in truth or lacked the courage to speak the truth. Um, talks about Liz Cheney, her credentials, her family ties as Dick Cheney's daughter. Puts her in the first rank of the conservative movement, on the front ranks, I should say. That is no longer good enough for Republicans. She must seemingly agree with Trump's false characterizations of the election or remain silent in the face of those lies, however damaging they might be. Those are the choices. And I think Dan nails it there. You know, Liz Cheney can continue to speak out about the uh, January 6th and the election and the fact that there wasn't widespread election fraud. Or she can kind of zip her lip. But there isn't a third way. And as a result, she's probably going to lose her post. And I think from her point of view, you know, she goes down fighting. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. President Biden uh, is going to speak to the country today about the implementation of the coronavirus relief package. You know what this is. And he has every right, obviously, to talk it up and address the country. This is him learning the lesson from Barack Obama in 2009, when Biden, of course, was VP, that you can't just pass a big bill. You got to continue to sell it, sell it, sell it. You got to go on the road. You got to say, here's the benefits for Missouri. Here's the benefits for California. Here's the benefits for Utah, for Florida. And you got to talk about different pieces of it because this is such a big bill, $2 trillion that you got to talk about the stimulus checks, you got to talk about the aid to business, you got to talk about the money for vaccinations. Uh, otherwise, the people who are critical of it are going to um, carry the day. But the other thing that the president did yesterday was, in a speech that was on, on the cable networks, is he set a goal. 70% of all adult Americans to have received at least one coronavirus vaccine by July 4th. 60% of adult Americans to be fully vaccinated. Um, and then he talked about, this is, this is where the media coverage comes in, because it's been clear for weeks and weeks and weeks, folks, that um, there were problems with the vaccination program, that once everybody who really wanted to get vaccinated would get vaccinated, you'd still have a whole bunch of people who are either putting it off, refusing, reluctant, hesitant, you use your favorite word. And so now Biden is saying, well, you know, we're going to have mobile clinics come to your neighborhood. We're going to make it easy for you. We're going to have you, we're talking to grocery stores. You go there and you get a discount on the food you buy, the products you buy. Well, this is 
the reason they're doing this is because the mass vaccination approach is not working. It worked fine for the people who wanted it, but the hassle involved, it, it just it's got to go down to the really local, like neighborhood, almost door-to-door level. And if the media were inclined against it, if Donald Trump was still president and this had happened and he'd given that speech, they would say, Trump is a failure. He's being forced to do this. He should have anticipated this. Instead, they're just saying, eh, Biden's changing tactics. But look, I'm all for it. I want more people to be vaccinated. Uh, And right now, according to the Washington Post, in just the last week, the vaccination rate dropped by 27% nationally. It went down in 44 states and D.C. 27% nationally. So uh, when Biden says, um, here's the numbers, 106 million Americans are fully vaccinated right now. So at the current rate, a total of 195 million Americans could be fully vaccinated by July 4th, well above Biden's goal of 160 million. So in other words, he set himself a low bar. But this assumes that the current vaccination rate will stay the same, but it may continue to go down. Daily vaccination has been falling for the past three weeks. White House, public health officials, Fauci, they're all trying to figure out uh, what we do. We're going to reach a point where the supply outstrips demand, when there's going to be lots of appointments available and nobody taking them. Kaiser Family Foundation says many states seem to be at or near this vaccine tipping point. So while this does seem a a rather low uh, hurdle to pass by July 4th, they may not even make it. They may not get 70% of the country, and then you don't have the elusive herd immunity and the virus can b- bounce back. By the way, I look at those, those numbers every day. There was something like uh, 50,000 new cases, which, you know, is still a lot. It's nothing compared to the 100,000, 150,000, over 200,000 cases that we had at the peak of the pandemic. But 890 Americans died of COVID-19 yesterday. Almost 900 Americans. If I told you a year ago we'd have a disease and more than one year in, We'd still be losing as many as 900 Americans a day? That would be horrible. But because, you know, you know what part of this is? It's New York. Because New York is now reopening and Andrew Cuomo has opened up the arts venues and Broadway is going to come back. And Bill de Blasio has said, you know, restaurants can open and businesses can open virtually without restriction. There are certainly some restrictions. Uh, All the New York-based media, same thing New Jersey, Connecticut, are saying the country's back. This is great because that's where they live. This is, New York news is a hundred thousand times more important than any other news from any other region of the country. And there are a lot of states where that's true, where the numbers have really plummeted, but they haven't plummeted everywhere, as the numbers I just read indicate. And if the vaccination rate continues to go down, we will have fumbled away. I think our chance to beat this thing. All right, number four, the birth rate. In case you were wondering, went down big time last year. Um, now your first, you know, remember when the coronavirus first happened, you know, pundits and armchair pundits, probably even me said, you know what, the birth rate's really going to skyrocket because you've got all these people stuck at home and like what else they have to do, fill in the blank. Instead, it went down. Now it's been going down. It's, this is the sixth straight year. The American birth rate has declined, but, uh, it so happens that in December of last year, birth rate was down 8% compared with the year before. Overall for the year, down by 4%. Now that may not sound by a lot, but that was a roughly double what it had been in previous years. So there's no question the coronavirus had an impact, in part because people, I'm sure, you know, many people were in dire economic straits or worried about the economy, thinking it's not a good time to bring a child into the world. Uh, here's another couple of numbers. Um, 
There were 3.6 million births in the U.S. last year, the lowest number since 1979. Uh, The birth rate has fallen by 19% since it peaked in 2007. So, I mean, look, obviously it's a very personal decision. Have a baby, don't have a baby. But more that the birth rate goes down, we are now at a point where we don't have replacement rate. In other words, more people are dying than are being born in the United States. And ultimately, that affects your economic um, power, your ability on the world stage, and all of that. Now, uh, New York Times points out that, you know, after economic crises, women tend to put off having babies. It happened sharply in the 1930s after the crash that started the Great Depression. Then it picked up. The economy bounced back. Great Recession in 2008 went down again. Economy bounced back. So now... Demographers are wondering what else is going on, that maybe there's something deeper here, uh, even with the economy starting to bounce back now, the pandemic, uh, this trend continues. All right, number five, I want to go back to COVID. Peace in the Atlantic, and it has to do with the political debate over lockdowns. Remember, the Atlantic's a, a, a liberal magazine, and here is the lead, that there are liberals who aren't quite ready to let go of pandemic restrictions. To them... Diligence against COVID-19 remains an expression of political identity, even when it means overestimating the disease's risks or setting limits far more strict than what public health guidelines permit. This is a real problem, folks. When people talk about, you know, Biden's still wearing masks outside, when Biden meets with other vaccinated people and he's wearing masks, I understand what he's doing, but he's kind of sending the signal that, you know what, even if you get vaccinated, your life still sucks. You still got to wear a mask outside. You still got to wear a mask in crowded places. Rather than talking up uh, the benefits, you know, a lot of people, younger people feel like even if they get it, maybe they won't be that sick. Why bother? You know, why go stand on a line? It's a hassle to register and all that stuff. So it's interesting. I mean, this is what conservatives have been saying about the left, and the Atlantic piece seems to agree. Um, This spring, after the vaccine rollout started, a third of very liberal people were, quote, very concerned about becoming seriously ill from COVID-19, compared with a quarter of liberals and moderates. So this is very liberals, a separate category. Um, And 43% of very liberal respondents believe that getting the coronavirus would have a very bad effect on their lives. Again, according to a third of even ordinary liberals and moderates. For many progressives, and here I think we come to the key point, extreme vigilance was in part about opposing Donald Trump. Some of the reaction born of deeply felt frustration with how he handled the pandemic could also be knee-jerk. Here's Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. If he, Trump, said, keep schools open, well then, we're going to do everything in our power to keep schools closed. Gandhi describes herself as left of left, but has alienated some of her ideological peers because she's advocated for policies like reopening schools and establishing, establishing a timeline for the end of mask mandates. But some progressives have not updated their behavior based on new information. And in their eagerness to protect themselves and others, says The Atlantic, they may be underestimating other costs. Being extra careful about COVID-19 is mostly harmless when it's limited to like wiping down your groceries with Lysol wipes and wearing a mask in places where you're unlikely to spread the virus, like on a hiking trail. But vigilance can have unintended consequences when it imposes on other people's lives. Even as scientific knowledge of COVID-19 has increased, some progressives have continued to embrace policies and behaviors that aren't supported by evidence, such as banning access to playgrounds, closing beaches, refusing to reopen schools 
for in-person learning. And there's been a huge backlash here. Uh, when Emily Oster, a Brown University economist, argued back in March in the Atlantic that families should plan to take their kids on trips to see friends and relatives this summer, a reader sent an email to her supervisors at the university suggesting she be promoted to a leadership role in the field of genocide encouragement. Here's this letter. Far too many people are now not, oh, it's sarcastic. Far too many people are not dying in our glo current global pandemic, and far too many children are not yet infected. With the upcoming consequences of global warming about to be felt by a wholly unprepared worldwide community, I believe the time is right to get young scholars ready to follow in Dr. Oster's footsteps and ensure the most comfortable place is to be white and upper middle class. I, I didn't even quite get that, but clearly it's a shot at home. You know, you, you go to, when somebody writes an opinion you don't agree with, and you go to their bosses and say basically this person is an a-hole, is dangerous, or, you know, is advocating genocide. What? I mean, first of all, it's chilling for free speech. I mean, maybe she's wrong. Maybe she's right. She's very, very liberal. But she says, we got to ease up. And this just gives fuel to the right. Conservatives have been saying this on and on. The Democratic governors were too slow to reopen. Uh, a lot of them are now reopening. I mentioned New York. California, which went through very rough times, I think now has the lowest coronavirus death rate in the country. In LA, I saw this may have changed, but in the previous two days, zero deaths in LA or LA County. Um, so we have to balance. I would love to see more people get the vaccine. I would love to see ordinary precautions taken. You know, even if you're vaccinated, if you're in a crowded place, you can still transmit. Very, very low chance of that happening, but that would be a place to wear a mask, but not when you're just walking around and not when you're inside with other vaccinated people. So, you know, both sides overreach. And right now, many on the liberal side are overreaching. The Atlantic is calling them out. And I think that that is a public service. Hey, I hope you'll subscribe here. I'll just run through the list here. Google Podcast. You can get this on your Amazon device or on Amazon Music, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or Apple iTunes. And we'll see you tomorrow with more buzz. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.